This is VOA News. Reporting via remote, I'm Jeff Custer. Ukraine rejected a Russian ultimatum to surrender the besieged city of Mariupol Monday as Russian forces carried out more shelling in the Ukrainian capital, Kiev. Russian state news agency RIA said Russia's defense ministry gave Ukraine's military a pre-dawn deadline Monday to surrender. Ukrainian Deputy Prime Minister Irina Verochuk rejected the Russian demand and said Russia should unconditionally open humanitarian corridors to allow citizens to leave Mariupol. Verochuk told the news, the news outlet Ukrainian Pravda there can be no talk of surrender or laying down arms. Shelling overnight, meanwhile, hit a shopping center in Kyiv, killing at least eight people, while Kyiv Mayor Vitaly Klitschko announced a new curfew until Wednesday morning. Meanwhile, Britain is accusing the Russian state of being behind a hoax, uh, behind hoax calls to two government ministers by an imposter posing as Prime Minister, the Prime Minister of Ukraine. Associated Press correspondent Charles Diladesma reports. British Defence Secretary Ben Wallace says the hoaxer was able to speak to him on a video call last Thursday, and Home Secretary Priti Patel said she'd received a similar call, whereas Culture Secretary Nadim Doris said an unsuccessful attempt was made to speak to her. Wallace says he became suspicious and hung up after the caller posed several misleading questions. Wallace blames Russian disinformation, distortion and dirty tricks for the hoax. Prime Minister Boris Johnson's spokesman Max Blaine says the Russian state was responsible for the calls made to government ministers last week. Charles Tuladesma, London. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has wrecked devastation and destruction, exacting a heavy toll on civilians. The U.N. says more than 3.8 million people have now fled Ukraine. This is VOA News. The United States Monday announced a formal determination that the military of Myanmar has committed genocide and crimes against humanity in its campaigns against the Rohingya minority. Details now from VOA's chief national correspondent, Steve Herman, in Washington. Speaking at the U.S. Holocaust Museum, Secretary of State Antony Blinken quoted accounts of the Rohingya victims as examples of the widespread and systematic evidence that Myanmar's military intended to destroy the mainly Muslim minority. The day will come when those responsible for these appalling acts will have to answer for them. Blinken warned, as long as the military junta remains in power, no one in the country, also known as Burma, will be safe. Steve Herman, VOA News, Washington. Blinken said Monday this is only the seventh time the U.S. has concluded that genocide has been committed. It's unclear what impact the designation will have in terms of policy towards Myanmar. Freed British charity worker Nazanin Zagiri Radcliffe said Monday it should not have taken six years to bring her home as she spoke for the first time since her release from an Iranian prison last week. Zagari Radcliffe and Anusha Ashuri were released last Wednesday amid efforts by Britain, the U.S., and other countries to secure the freedom of dozens of people with dual citizenship with Iran, which doesn't recognize the right to hold citizenship in another country. Family members and human rights activists accuse Iran of arresting the dual nationals on trumped-up charges to squeeze concessions out of Western nations. Speaking at a London news conference, Zagari Radcliffe said memories of her daughter, who appeared with her Monday, helped sustain her through her captivity. She said while she was grateful to be free, she feels her journey will not be complete until fellow hostage Murad Tabaz and other similar prisoners are also released. 
DeVos was left out of the deal that brought the other two prisoners home. Diplomatic officials say his case is complicated by the fact that, along with Iranian citizenship, he holds both British and U.S. citizenship as well. The U.S. Treasury Department Monday announced it had imposed sanctions on Sudan's Central Reserve Police for grave human rights violations towards peaceful protesters who've been publicly, who've been publicly demonstrating against the military coup in the country. In a statement, the Treasury's office says the Central Reserve Police have used excessive force towards peaceful demonstrators in Khartoum. The statement cited the group firing live ammunition on civilians in January where one protester was killed. The sanctions, the new sanctions would freeze any U.S. assets of the Central Reserve Police and prohibit U.S. citizens from dealing with them. Repeating this hour's top news story, Ukraine has rejected a Russian ultimatum to surrender the besieged city of Maripool on Monday. Reporting via remote, I'm Jeff Custer. This is VOA News. Monday, March 21st, and this is VOA's International Edition. I am Chinedua in Washington. Coming up in the next half hour, Britain's Prime Minister says the Russian victory in Ukraine would herald a, quote, new age of intimidation for the world, unquote. Speaking at the Conservative Party conference in Blackpool, Prime Minister Boris Johnson called Russia's invasion of Ukraine a turning point for the world. The Red Cross and Red Crescent societies express fear of disease outbreak in camps for cyclone victims in Madagascar. We are preventing this reaching population to see how we can mobilize them on that, but it is a challenge and we are fearing that the outbreak will occur very soon. And Yemen's Iran-aligned Houthi group fires missiles and drones at Saudi Arabia energy and water desalination facilities. We'll have these stories and more next on International Edition. Stay tuned. Ukrainian authorities say Russia's military bombed an art school sheltering about 400 people in the besieged port city of Mariupol. Refugees arriving in western Ukraine from the port city says, quote, battles took place on every street, unquote, weeks into a crippling Russian siege. Western military analysts say that even if the city is taken, the troops battling for control there may be too depleted to secure Russian breakthroughs on other fronts. Three weeks into the invasion, many see the conflict shift into a war of attrition with bogged-down Russian forces launching long-range rockets as Ukrainian forces carry out hit-and-run attacks. Analysts warn a stalemate could even be deadlier. Britain's Prime Minister says that if Russia becomes victorious in Ukraine, it will herald a new age of intimidation for the world. Associated Press correspondent Karine Chamas reports. Speaking at the Conservative Party conference in Blackpool, Prime Minister Boris Johnson called Russia's invasion of Ukraine a turning point for the world. The British leader argued that Russian President Vladimir Putin did not invade Ukraine because he didn't want them to join NATO, but rather because he was frightened of having a democratic country at its doorstep. He was frightened of Ukraine because in Ukraine they have a free press. And in Ukraine, they have free elections. However, the British leader came under fire from opponents for likening Ukrainians fighting to defend their country to Britons voting to leave the European Union. When the British people voted for Brexit in such large, large numbers, I don't believe it was because they were remotely hostile to, to foreigners. It's because they wanted 
to be free. Ed Davey, leader of the opposition Liberal Democrats party, called Johnson a national embarrassment for the comments. Karen Chavas, London. Western experts say Russia has run into unexpected resistance from Ukrainian forces as their advances into key cities have stalled. Russian President Vladimir Putin, however, says the invasion is going according to plans as his forces continue to bombard its neighbor. What is Putin's game plan and end game? Reporter Henry Ridgewood spoke with Kurt Volker, former U.S. ambassador to NATO and former U.S. special advisor for Ukraine negotiations from 2017 to 2019 for an insight into the mind of the Russian leader. I think that Putin is actually in a fairly desperate position right now. His military advance is not working. The military forces are bogged down. They are being attacked by the Ukrainians as well. They've had to resort to targeting civilians deliberately to try to terrorize the population because they're not succeeding against the Ukrainian military. And meanwhile, the economic situation in Russia continues to deteriorate. So he's squeezed between a failing military operation and a failing economy. This makes him quite dangerous. It means that he is resorting to these more inhumane tactics of targeting Ukrainian civilians. He has asked for Syrian fighters to come in and join the fight. He's asked for help from China. He has threatened biological or chemical or even nuclear use, all of which would be tremendous escalations. He's also threatened to attack NATO forces that are supplying the Ukrainians. So these are desperate moves. They, they indicate a lack of confidence rather than any kind of supreme confidence. I think the Ukrainians have essentially succeeded in blunting Putin's invasion force, meaning that they are likely to survive and succeed here in the long run, even if it's going to be an awful and brutal struggle. You've written that it's vital that the West and Ukraine holds out until the Western sanctions are felt in Moscow and until those leaders in Moscow are able to exert pressure to end the invasion. Do you think that time bracket is sufficient before we get to the stage where just Ukraine has to give some kind of ground because of the huge numbers of civilians who are dying? That is actually exactly what I think is in the balance. I think you put your finger right on it. They are suffering tremendous casualties in Ukraine, but they also have tremendous resolve and will. And they feel that the tide has actually turned a little bit in their favor. And so they are not anxious to give away things in negotiations. They're, they're anxious to actually defend their country. What we in the West, I think, need to be doing is providing the Ukraine all the arms, all the support that we can to help them buy time so that these economic sanctions against Russia have an even bigger impact. A successful settlement and a fair settlement would only come if Russia withdraws its forces from Ukraine. And that will only happen if the Russians feel that they are, in fact, overstretched, not able to sustain the effort, and it is becoming too costly on Russia as a country. What practical measures, then, would you like NATO militarily to take now? Several. There's two pieces to this. One of them are the bilateral U.S measures to support uh, Ukraine, some of which were announced by the president. Sending armed drones is an excellent idea and I think will be very useful. More air defense systems, including those that operate at higher altitudes. More shore-to-ship systems to take out some of the Russian naval ships in the Black Sea. I do believe that the MiG-29s and other fighter aircraft should be provided. We're, we're not quite there yet. I understand the arguments against a no-fly zone, but I think we should not take it off the table. I think we should continue to think about that because it is a important to protect humanitarian routes and to protect civilian lives. So some form of limited no-fly zone could still be possible. When you turn to NATO, I think there is an additional agenda that uh, NATO could be looking at at its summit meeting next week. First off, the provision of aid 
to Ukraine, particularly military support to Ukraine, is rather discoordinated right now. And NATO could provide something of a clearinghouse function, and it could provide an assurance of delivery by creating a safe place for that in Poland and ensuring that it arrives successfully in Ukraine. Second thing is to continue reinforcing the Central and Eastern European allies so that it is a very clear signal to Russia that NATO is committed to collective defense of its own members. I think that's tremendously important. That's former U.S. Ambassador to NATO and former U.S. Special Advisor for Ukraine negotiations from 2017 to 2019, Kurt Volker, speaking with reporter Harry Ridgewell. Experts warned the conflict in Ukraine could increase hunger and food insecurity for some in Africa. Most African countries import wheat and vegetable oil from Ukraine and Russia, a region engulfing conflict since Russia invaded its neighbor. Mohamed Yusuf reports. African families are feeling the pinch as prices of essential commodities increase due to persistent drought, the coronavirus pandemic, and now the Russia-Ukraine conflict. The United Nations says Russia and Ukraine produce 53% of the world's sunflowers and seeds and 27% of the world's wheat. The United Nations Conference on Trade and Development figures show Africa imported wheat from the two countries worth $5.1 billion between 2018 2020. The study shows at least 25 African countries import a third of their wheat from Russia and Ukraine, and 15 of them import more than half from those two countries. Kenya is one of the African countries affected by the global food price increase. The head of policy research and advocacy at the Kenya Association of Manufacturers, Job Wanjohi, says the cost of importing wheat to the country has increased by 33%. The cost of wheat uh, per ton, uh, of which Kenya is heavily dependent on Russia and Ukraine, uh, has increased to US dollars 460 per ton. Uh, before it was 345 US dollars per ton. And the landed cost in Nairobi uh, is likely to increase now from 500 to 550 uh, US dollars per ton, around there. Uh, so you see the Ukraine-Russian war is a the situation as food, the food security in the country is concerned. Vegetable oil prices have also increased. Malaysia and Indonesia account for 85% of global crude palm oil exports. Malaysian authorities warned this week the price of palm oil could reach $2,200 a ton and is expected to remain that way until the third quarter of the year. Peter Kamelingen is the head of Pan-Africa at the charity Oxfam International. He says Africa is more vulnerable to food insecurity. Relying on global food chains only means that you're going to be more vulnerable. For a long time, Oxfam has said that what we need is actually to invest in small farmers making them more resilient, bringing technologies that are responsive to their, you know, that are, that are sensitive and responsive to their unique needs. Small food producers are still the most important. And I think our services, our national budget investments have not been focused on this. Food sovereignty means producing as much food as possible within the country, if not within the country, at least within the region. He also says African governments are not investing enough in their communities. Uh, governments in our part of the, the world have had to go into increasing problems of date in some of the economies in the region. For every 10 shillings of the national budget, probably seven is going to repaying date. That also means that governments are not investing in social services, in, in health, in water, in education, so that 
that burden is being transferred to the household. And most of those people in the household, it simply means women and children are the ones who are bearing that burden. The UN's International Fund for Agricultural Development warns that the ongoing war in Ukraine will escalate global hunger and poverty. Mohamed Yusuf for VA News, Nairobi. The UN Refugee Agency, UNHCR, and 102 humanitarian and developmental agencies are asking for $1.2 billion to help 2.3 million South Sudanese refugees and communities, sheltering them in five countries. Lisa Schlein reports for VOA from Geneva. Nearly 4 million South Sudanese have fled nearly a decade of civil war and a peace deal that has not yet come to fruition. They are either still in that country or have become refugees in neighboring countries. The South Sudanese refugee crisis is Africa's largest and the response to it is one of the least funded humanitarian operations. An estimated 2.3 million people have fled to the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Ethiopia, Kenya, Sudan, and Uganda. While praising their generosity, UN refugee spokesman Matthew Saltmarsh says those countries are poor, suffer from many of the same problems as does South Sudan, and can ill afford to care for the masses of impoverished refugees. South Sudan continues to grapple with sporadic violence, chronic food insecurity, and the devastating impact of major flooding. The COVID-19 pandemic has also strained people's resources. Asylum countries are facing similar challenges from the climate crisis and the pandemic, but have continued to keep their doors open for refugees. Saltmar says the host countries need support to provide food, shelter, and essential services such as education and health care. The United Nations says women and girls in South Sudan are subject to gender-based violence, rape, and conflict-related sexual violence. Saltmar says the UNHCR and partners will scale up programs to prevent and respond to gender-based violence. They will provide mental health and psychosocial support to victims of abuse. This follows a worrying rise in reports of depression over the last year, especially among refugees in Kenya and Uganda. It remains, of course, as you know, a children's crisis, with two out of three South Sudanese refugees being under the age of 18. Funding is required for child protection, including to ensure proper birth registration and family reunification. Saltmarsh acknowledges competition for scarce resources is fierce. He notes the international focus and response to the war in Ukraine is overwhelming. He says that is appropriate given the enormity of the crisis. However, he says the plight of the South Sudanese refugees must not be forgotten. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. The International Committee of the Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies have expressed fears of an outbreak of communicable diseases in camps for thousands of people affected by tropical storms Batsirai and Eminati in Madagascar. This, as officials have begun distribution of relief materials to assist families rebuild their lives. The government estimated that over 1 million people were displaced and acres of farmland washed away, triggering fears of food insecurity. David Barianga is operations coordinator for the ICRC covering Madagascar, Seychelles, Mauritius and Comoros. He says officials are making efforts to rehabilitate those affected amid serious operational challenges.
We are still struggling with assisting the affected population, especially in the south of Madagascar, where Batirai and Emineti tropical cyclone passed by. Our target, for example, was 10,000 households. We have already started distribution of different uh, items like kitchen set, like shelter kits, like hygienic hygiene kits. We have also started distributing cash to different people. Our target till the end of the next week is reaching 3,000 households. Then after that, we'll go and move to other areas. But, you know, so far, we still have some areas with difficulties. How are you dealing with areas that you've not been able to access? And how are the people coping with the difficulties? The people started going home from the accommodation site, going back to their homes, despite some areas, of course, which are still flooded and where the access is still difficult. But go around, you find people just coping with repairing their houses. Their main concern is really repairing their houses to see how they can go back to their normal lives. That is still difficult. And those areas with difficult access, we try to move with the government support, moving with helicopters to reach those areas, bringing different items with the helicopters, which means that it is very difficult to get there and to be able to assist a lot of people because helicopter is the only one way to use in those difficult areas to access. There were fears of an outbreak of either waterborne disease or COVID because of the close, compact nature of people staying together, what you provided for them to stay. Have you noticed any outbreak and what are your fears? Yeah, so far there is no outbreak, but we are very much concerned by the health condition. No more rains now for the moment, but stagnant waters are still in different areas, which will spread waterborne disease, malaria, and some maybe respiratory diseases, which is really, we are dealing with that. We are preventing this, reaching population to see how we can mobilize them on that. But it is a challenge, and we are fearing that the outbreak will occur very soon. Another thing is that the inter-country roads, which have very much affected, still being damaged, and the food supply will remain a challenge now. That may lead to food insecurity as well, because the majority of crops have been inundated, and there is no hope for next crop harvest. So we are also expecting malnutrition and food insecurity area. What about security? There's no problem of security all along the areas because we are also partnering with the government, with the Minister of Defense, with the policeman, etc. And the population themselves are very much involved in accompanying and supporting the humanitarian actors coming to support them. That's Dennis Barrianga, Operations Coordinator for the ICRC covering Madagascar, Seychelles, Mauritius and Comoros. Yemen's Iran-allied Houthi group fired missiles and drones at Saudi energy and water desalination facilities, which oil from Saudi Aramco said on Sunday did not impact supplies or cause casualties. The Saudi-led coalition battling the group said the attack late Saturday and early Sunday and debris from intercepted projectiles caused material damage but no deaths. Houthi military spokesman Yahya Sereya said they fired ballistic and wing missiles as well as drones at Aramco facilities in the capital Riyadh, Yambu and other areas. The Saudi-led coalition says initial investigations 
showed the group fired Iranian-made cruise missiles at the desalination plant and Aramco's Jizan distribution center. The seven-year Yemeni conflict is widely seen in the region as a proxy war between Saudi Arabia and Iran. The war has killed tens of thousands of people and pushed millions to the verge of farming. For more on this story and other breaking news, visit our website at vonews.com. Remember to connect with us on social media. We are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Search for VOA Africa. You are listening to VOA's International Edition. I am Chinedua for in Washington. Arab and Western observers are saying that Syrian President Bashar al-Assad's visit to the United Arab Emirates Friday portends a greater opening towards Damascus by other Arab states, which have been waiting on the sidelines to normalize ties with Syria in the wake of the country's civil conflict. An upcoming Arab League meeting, they say, could return Syria's seat at a regional body to Assad's government. Edward Uranian reports for VOA from Cairo. Arab media, based in the United Arab Emirates, cast a positive light on the visit of Syrian President Bashar al-Assad to both Abu Dhabi and Dubai Friday to meet the top rulers of the important Gulf state, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Zayed and Dubai's Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid al-Maktoum. Assad's meeting Friday followed a visit by the UAE's foreign minister Abdullah bin Zayed to Moscow a day earlier where he met with Russian President Vladimir Putin. Putin, whose country deployed troops to Syria in 2015 to support the Assad government, has been urging Arab states to normalize ties with Damascus. Washington-based Gulf analyst Theodore Karasik tells V.